9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello and welcome to another episode of Deep State Radio. I'm your host, David Rothkopf, coming to you from New York City. Also joining us from New York City, we have Daniel Shaviro, who is the Wayne Perry Professor of Taxation at NYU School of Law. Uh, Hi there, Daniel. Thank you for joining us. Hi. Thanks for having me. And, of course, we have uh, our regular uh, um, uh, pal, Dr. Kavita Patel, um, who is a former uh, senior Obama official, worked on the Hill for Senator Edward Kennedy as a practicing physician, um, and, uh, as we've discovered over the weeks, knows more about most things than most people. So we've, we, we, we love to have her on board. Hi, Kavita. Hi, David. And I, I want to tell you, I, I've also paid more than $750 in taxes last year. So I'm really an expert on this topic now. Well, you should have gone into business and lost a lot of money. Then you wouldn't have had the problem. Yeah, exactly. American way, the, 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 pre- the president of the United States thinks you're a sucker. Um, he th- it thinks anybody who pays over $750 is a sucker, and he sees it as a failure since 10 out of 15 years covered by the 20-year releases of the New York Times, or almost 20 years, um, he didn't pay anything at all. Anyway, I, you know, Daniel wrote a really, really good piece for Just Security um, uh, in the wake of the New York Times revelation, and um, so I thought we would start uh, start with that. What were the main takeaways that you had, Daniel, from uh, the New York Times piece? Well, the first one, and I lead my piece off with this, is that uh, tax is the least of it. Uh, it's uh, because we have someone with these uh, large debts that are coming due, and we don't know who he owes the money to, and we have the manifest conflicts of interest, and also proof that, for example, lobbyists are using his businesses. Uh, the, the, so there's the, the worst stuff is really not tax. Uh, so that's one thing. A second thing is just that, unless the numbers here are even more made up than I would think, uh, someone who's sort of incompetent in business and loses tons of money. And by the way, uh, and I say this, the piece is sometimes it seems like people think, what a genius, he lost money so he doesn't have to pay tax. Well, uh, I, my joke was, uh, what if I got fired from my job and uh, uh, then made myself unemployable? Then I certainly wouldn't pay tax, but it wouldn't have been a clever tax planning trick because the aim is to make money and to have tax losses, not economic losses. So he genuinely lost a lot of money. There's actually less tax scandal in that than, than the sort of the shock that someone with his talents at the COVID uh, 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 response extend to the business realm as well. Uh, but then there is a, a lot of information about aggressive, aggressive is putting it mildly, tax positions, clearly wrong tax positions, ones that are clearly improper, that based on the Times description, seem to have no chance of being upheld. And that would, based on further investigation, raise questions about fraud. Because you and I can make a mistake in a tax return and take a position that's clearly wrong. It's not right off the bat fraud. Uh, but there's some research and investigation you want to know about some of the things that seem to have been his returns that are clearly wrong based on the Times descriptions. So you mean all the money that I send my daughters 
in the course of the year cannot be called a consulting fee and taken as a tax deduction? Yeah, that is a funny thing. Well, some of those are funny because uh, if Ivanka, some of the possible frauds or error, again, I can't really say fraud without knowing more, but our settler, like Ivanka is both an employee and a, uh, and a consultant, uh, assuming she's really doing work, uh, whatever you call it, what she does, uh, I would say that, that that's probably a, either an, a, a trick on the gift tax to give her money without paying gift tax, or it might be just to avoid the, when you get paid wages, you're supposed to contribute a piece of it to Medicare. And unlike Social Security, it doesn't disappear when you have like $100. So we're also joined now by uh, David Korn, noted journalist, man who has himself immersed himself in the coverage of the finances of Donald Trump, amongst other things. Also, uh, saliently, his ties uh, to, to, to Russia and, and Russians. Um, and frankly, it was just one of the best journalists out there at covering uh, the scandals and corruption around here uh, of, of, of this Trump era for Mother Jones. Hi, David. Hey, thanks for having me. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Uh, D- Daniel, I don't know if you saw Daniel's piece, but Daniel had a piece in Just Security a few days ago summarizing his takeaway from the, uh, uh, the New York Times blockbuster piece on Trump's taxes. What was your take? Well, it's, you know, we now know why Trump did not want the tax returns to come out. And as you might know, I became a little obsessed with this over the past couple of years. And literally every day I tweeted out, today would be a good day for Donald Trump to release his tax returns. Now, I think anyone who follows him knew that there'd be all sorts of goodies there, you know, that would show that he's not worth as much as he might says he is, that there are some dodgy schemes and maybe some indication of where the money's coming from, from overseas sources, indication of who he owes money to. And indeed, we got most of that, right? But to me, the, the, the big issue was that although he promised and lied when he said before he ran that he would release his tax returns, by not doing so as a candidate and not doing so as president and sort of ripping up this tradition that had been in place for decades, he signaled to us very early on, that he does not believe the rules apply to him. He just doesn't believe that. This was the clearest, one of the earliest examples of that. And that's pretty damn dangerous for a guy who's in charge of our nuclear arsenal, our financial well-being who has to safeguard the nation should a pandemic arise. He doesn't believe rules apply to him. And we see in the tax returns, as we saw in the New York Times story, was it two years ago now, uh, about his family and Trump himself committing fraud to save hundreds of millions of dollars to keep them from being taxed. We, we, we see again that he's using very dodgy and sketchy measures to not pay his fair share. And the Times, I think, was a little polite about some of these techniques, but um, you know, in their Timesian way, they you know they showed that here you know he's paying Ivanka eight hundred thousand dollars as a consultant on a deal that she's working on as a officer of the Trump organization, and then writing off that money, right, that a consultant payment on the tax returns, and he did that in other instances. We just don't know who he paid off. Is it Don Jr.? Is it Derek Trump? Are other payments to other family members? Maybe Tiffany. Um, 
we don't know, but we see that again, he's not playing by the rules. We've known this for a long time. And we also see that he's not a, a, a tremendous business genius, that his marquee properties, yeah, he made a lot of money, you know, early on, and then he lost it in the 90s that he branded himself with The Apprentice, made a lot of money. But then when he tried to do business deals in that same time period, whether it was the Trump Hotel here in Washington or the Trump Doral Country Club outside of Miami, they were flops. He can't run a business. He literally cannot run a business. He can sell his name. There's something that he has that is valuable to some people, his name, his brand. And he can sell his name to a hotel in Turkey. He can, you know, he tried to do an Azerbaijan that didn't work out, but he can do that, but he can't run a business. Uh, he, the only thing he can make a deal on is selling his name. And even then with Trump vodka, Trump steaks, Trump university, it doesn't always work out. So this showed that the whole edifice and the whole and the artifice was an artifice that, you know, of him being this tremendous business genius who could come in and make deals for the USA and you, you know, workers in these um, hard hit industries, just like I do deals on TV. Uh, so, I mean, there's, you know, the, the, the tax returns kind of reveal, you know, the soul of the Trump enterprise. And as we could expect, it's pretty damn rotten. There's also a lot of grandiosity there. Like he thinks you get these big name prestige properties and pour a lot of money into them. That's a smart thing to do. It's not necessarily very smart. And we saw the results for him. Yeah, because especially now since he's leveraged, that was, I have to say, I have to give credit to Russ Choma, who works for me at Mother Jones, because he had a story in June that Trump had hundreds of millions of dollars uh, coming due on these loans that were part of the time story. That information was available outside of his tax records. And here's the guy, $421 million that he owes. Now, he, he has said since the story came out that he's under leveraged. And in a way, he's actually right. Because how much is Trump Tower worth? Maybe a billion dollars? He may have assets that surpass the money he, he owes, but he doesn't have the cash. So when they look, you can't pay back a loan with a building unless you sell the building or hand the building over. So he has to pay back Deutsche Bank and other institutions that, we, that are kind of opaque, uh, $421 million over the next couple of years. He, we don't know how he's going to do this. It, now, maybe he'll have to sell Trump Tower and maybe someone will buy it and tear it down because it's not a great building and put something else up there, which would be very appropriate at the end of the Trump era for someone to, for him to have to have a fire sale of Trump Tower. But he, you know, what we have this issue that I tried to raise before the election that never before have we had a president with such, a, with such conflicts of interest owing hundreds of millions of dollars to people, including foreign banks and being in charge of things that affect these banks, and now even more so with, with larger loans coming due uh, should he win re-election. So I'm glad the Times highlighted that pivot. I think it's highly, highly important, and I still don't think it's fully resonated. Like in, this happens with these big stories. There are like 20 blockbusters within the blockbuster, and so they don't all get attention. Uh, but that's one of the big things here. This guy owes a lot of money. There be, people will be knocking on his door very soon. He doesn't have the cash to pay for it. He said he had a, that he would put $100 million into his own re-election campaign. That hasn't happened yet, because I don't think he has the cash for that either. Well, let me come back to some of these issues. Let me turn to Kavita. 
uh, who's been sitting patiently. Uh, and I'd like two things from you, Kavita. First of all, your reaction to this, um, uh, uh, both as somebody who's been in a senior level in government before, um, and uh, as somebody who paid over $750 in taxes. Um, and, uh, and, and maybe you have some, a question for Daniel or, and David. Yeah, I do. And, and excellent, uh, David, great reporting. Mother Jones, I'm going to ask you about conflict of interest and as it relates to, to Trump in a second. Um, I would just say that my first impression here when I read through the Times and David it has been kind of you know, challenging the public, like when are we going to see these tax returns? My first thought was, God, you know, the tax system is really flawed. And then it was actually in kind of reading Daniel's work that I think, Daniel, correct me if I'm wrong. And I think I'm not unusual. I think a lot of people would see that Trump getting away with, you know, not paying taxes is kind of an indictment of the tax system. I certainly thought that. I think you wrote somewhere, at your blog or in one of the pieces that this is actually, you know, it's not the tax system. You could actually argue it was the auditing. I mean, there's a number of mechanisms because I'm trying to understand and I'm trying to think through, I know people who have lost their jobs and are going to pay taxes and, you know, would just to serve kind of the rights that they enjoy as Americans pay those taxes, but have had to make decisions like not getting their medicine and not being able to provide meals for their families. So it just seems so distasteful on so many levels. Daniel, do you have a way you teach students, what is it that we need to take away from the other than this kind of odious example of Trump? Where does this, what do we need to change in our system? Because Trump is just the most emblematic kind of, you know, enemy of, of so much of what I want to go right in this country, but he's probably not alone. I, and, and I think you've talked about different circumstances, corporate titans and Apple and other large firms who have been able for different reasons to not pay taxes. So is it our tax system? Is it something else? Is it totally different? It pains me to let the tax system off the hook because I take uh, perverse pride in like uh, noticing how bad the system is in a lot of respects. But I don't think the problems with the tax system were central here. Again, when you, when you start deducting haircuts and non-consultant things, a tax system has to kind of allow business deductions to be claimed and uh, personal deductions not to be. And if some scoundrels intentionally get it completely wrong, that's an auditing problem. Likewise, if you actually lose money, that's an auditing problem. So there are big problems with the tax. And if you ask why does Apple and why do Amazon, Facebook, Google, and Apple pay so little tax, then I would say, yeah, now we're talking about problems with the tax system. But for Trump, we're really talking problems with auditing. Again, you really can't help but have a rule that business expenses are deductible and personal things and gifts aren't. And then you have taxpayers filling out their own returns. So the solution to that is auditing and jail for people who auditing penalties in jail. That's the solution. Uh, so of course, the IRS budget has been cut off and in bad faith. So yeah, so I don't see the flaws of the tax system real though they are as really central to this particular story. And, and I think, and then David, just to ask you, just I, I find that so much of Trump, like you said, it's 20 stories, 200 stories within a story. Some of this kind of coming, you know, what he's been able to do in all aspects of his executive branch has been able to kind of have curry favors and bury things in what are incredible conflicts of interest. And so you, I think you've chronicled most recently Jared Kushner's conflict of interest around a property firm that he owns. But you know, if you dissect even further, Peter Thiel, who's done a number of things and facilitated some of these relationships 
uh, for which Donald Trump has incurred losses on his businesses. You know, Peter Thiel took a company direct to uh, the stock market public this week, Palantir, for which they happen to have a number of preferential government contracts and so on and so on. Where, what, it, it's hard to even kind of ask this question, but what, what do you find from your reporting that we need to be asking about related to these conflicts, which I think are directly related to the mentality that this president has had with how he's handled his finances, his business relationships, and candidly how he's always looked to protect himself and in some cases his family, but nobody else. It comes back to the essence of Trump. Trump is a pathological narcissist. And he believes that everything in the world is an extension of him. And the only thing that matters outside of himself are things that matter to him, right? So becoming president is not about helping the country or, or, or even moving the country in one direction or another. Uh, it's about what it means for him. What it means for him, primarily what it means for his business entities and his business enterprises. I mean, the more we've learned is that, you know, his, he, you know he wasn't doing so well going into the 2016 election in 2015. And, you know, it's become a bit of a cliche, but I think it's, I think there's a lot of truth there that he ran as pre for president initially to enhance his brand. And by all accounts, didn't think he would win. Melania certainly didn't think he would win. And that this would just sort of be the next, you know, you know, um, uh, I don't know, di you know, diversity movement for his enterprise. He would divers diversify somehow out of this and somehow monetize it, you know, his own TV network or whatever it might be. Um, so that's his perspective here. How can he monetize? How can he capitalize? How can he exploit all this stuff? Um, you know, we all watch the, 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 the shit show of the debate on Tuesday night. I know I can say shit show on a podcast. I can't say it on MSNBC. But, um, and um, did he ever once talk about uh, Americans who are hurting now because of the economic recession? I mean, I mean, when I say ever, I mean, I mean ever. Did he say it once? Did he say, did he once talk about, you know, families have been hard hit by the, by the pandemic who've lost members or are sick and, and can't go to work or have long lasting effects from this? He, he simply, simply doesn't care. This is a kleptocracy, um, almost like it's like psychological. It's not like let's figure out how to, you know, how to do this once we get in. This is the core of his essence. This is his being. This is like what, what, what Dr. Strangler, purity of essence. His purity of es essence is what's in it for me. And not just because what's in it for me rather than you. You don't exist. It's only what's in it for him. So the story I put out today is like a, 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 a sort of small extension of that. Jared Kushner owns a, a stake in a real estate company called Cadre, between 25 and $50 million. He started, he co-founded it a couple of years ago before entering uh, the White House. Cadre is out there now looking by its own admission on its own website for deals with hotels that are distressed, that have been hurt by the pandemic. So wait a second, Kushner is, owns a company that's trying to make money off the recession caused by the pandemic. And the hotel industry out there is trying to get, you know, relief, I think deservedly so, from the White House and the, and the, and the, and the, and the 
relief packages have been debated. Uh, they, you know, like the airline industry, they've been asking for, in the restaurant industry, they've been asking to get some help. Now, we don't know if Jared Kushner's sitting in the room for these conversations, but his company is looking to make money off hotels that don't get help. Now, you know, I'm not saying he's planning to ruin these hotels in order to make money through cadre, but it is the definition of conflict of interest. You know, and there are criminal statutes that, that might apply. We don't, we don't, White House won't tell us what he's working on and whether he's involved or not, but that could apply. And it's, you know, and this is just one out of dozens and dozens and dozens of conflicts of interest. You know, the conflicts of interest uh, ethics guidelines don't apply to the president. They literally well, I think, don't. I think Citizens for Ethics has counted 3,400 conflicts of interest. So, so, so it's, it's, it's not even just dozens and dozens. Daniel, did you want to intervene there? I was going to say something when David was mentioning this sort of uh, exclusive concern with himself. I was thinking how amazing it was the first day he was president that the first issue he raised was that the uh, crowds at his inauguration were bigger because that combined being demonstrably false and which was really a way of saying to everyone that it doesn't matter what's true, it's only what I pretend. But also it was so completely selfish and self-centered a concern. It wasn't a concern for his, his followers, it was purely for him. So it was sort of astonishingly naked in its uh, its purely ego-driven selfishness and lack of any pre pretense of caring about anyone else. I was amazed that his followers took that, but apparently they thought it was fine. You know, Kabita, you were talking a minute ago about conflict of interest. I was kind of shocked. I don't know if you were shocked, but I mean, David used the term shit show about the debate, uh, which you can say on a podcast. Um, and so uh, it's not the term I would use because I really saw it as a kind of a clusterfuck. But whether it was a shit show or it was a clusterfuck, uh, but I, you know, we, we, we can debate that separately. And, you know, Chris Wallace, it wasn't just that he wasn't in control. He didn't ask any of the right questions. And to me, the big question, this goes back to a point that David makes, um, is, th you know, $300 million or $421 million coming due in the next four years that he is on the hook for. And when you're in that kind of a situation, you don't have the cash, the person you owe money to owns you. And so the question is, who owns Donald Trump? And you would think that this would be central because when you got your job in the Obama White House, somebody said to you, what are your finances? Because they knew if there was a conflict of interest, you couldn't get a security clearance, you couldn't be in the loop. Isn't that right? Yeah, and I don't know if you recall, David, honestly, the whole time you were talking, I was thinking of Norma Eisen, who was our counsel, who, who literally, you know, there was a declaration that Obama campaign had made about not hiring any lobbyists, if you'll recall, and I had never lobbied, so I was, I was fine. But there were some people who I think like four years prior, as is common in DC, had worked for a law firm and technically been kind of registered as lobbyists and they were not considered for jobs. And there was this incredible kind of, you know, backlash uh, that came where in the second term for Obama, they made some exceptions and encouraged people to deregister. So David, when you were, talking, I was actually thinking like, you know, I wonder what Biden's going to do as kind of a reaction. And on top of that, 
just I've been the reason I picked up on the reporting on the conflicts is because of how much we had to disclose all of my tax returns, FBI clearance, et cetera. I know Jared Kushner has that level of security clearance and I can't help but think, I'd love to see his SF-86, you know, with some of those questions and some of the other things that are on there. Yeah, yeah. Do, you, do you remember that he had to file his financial disclosure form time and time and time again, because he kept leaving, like the, the company I talked about, Cadre, to David's point, you know, not only do, do some people own him, it's so clear. I mentioned Peter Thiel because that's just a little more close to my wheelhouse analytics and what he's doing, what they're doing in um, bio it, kind of informatics. But it, who, how many examples are there that the public doesn't understand? And still, despite that, despite that, I want everyone listening. Donald Trump's approval ratings after that true clusterfuck didn't go down. And, and that's where I'm kind of, you know, I remind myself that the 2020 mentality of, of voters is something that I don't even think we understand. If his approval ratings aren't necessarily improving, but they're not going down despite that well, show. I think, of, I think of the cognitive dissonance in, in, in something that David said earlier, right? He said he's a terrible businessman, but he's able to sell his name. So there's some number of people out there who want to buy it, something branded with the name of somebody who sucks at business. So that's the 40%, you know, it's the people, the, the people who are buying something that's not there. Let me go quickly with a question to Daniel and then one to David again. But, but, but Daniel, one of the things that strikes me about this, and it picks up on what Kavita was saying, was that this could go on for so long. You know, we had, as David noted, the New York Times article a couple of years ago it said this is seems like, you know, a lifetime of 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 fraud by the Trump family. This has gone on for a long time. Presumably, every time Trump borrows money from a U.S. bank or a bank operating in the U.S., he's got to submit the tax returns. And this thing that Michael Cohen talked about, where he you know, undervalues things for tax purposes and overvalues them for borrowing purposes has got to come up. How do you get through the system to age 74 being known to everybody in the city that you live in as a fraudster and having apparently done this and, you know, it doesn't work. Is the system corrupt? Is, is you know, uh, Vance, you know, who didn't bring charges against him, just did he like the fact that he was paying him, you know, uh, you know, uh, 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 funds to his campaign? How do you explain it? Well, this is why Deutsche Bank was the only one left that would deal with him. And of course, they seem to have some shady uh, sides that might have explained that. And of course, he had to go to the Russians for money. He did burn through. He got to the point where U.S. financial institutions wanted nothing to do with him, except Deutsche Bank and the Russians and other foreign sources. I, I, we don't really know the full story, but I think they saved him, they, these sort of corrupt foreign sources, because no one else, I guess like a gangster figure, since uh, I'm willing to lend anyone money since I can break his kneecaps if he doesn't pay it back. So, and he was, in, of course, seems to be involved in criminal money laundering, things like that. Uh, so yeah, he did burn through his, his credit with the US banks, but he had other sources available. But, but, but David, this comes back, you know, you wrote a great book on the Russia um, scandal. Somehow, again, I found it amazing that we essentially got through a debate. I mean, here's a guy whose original sin was betraying his country, uh, then obstructed justice for the entirety of his term in office, 
we now have plenty of people coming out revealing the questions that weren't asked or the pressure that was put on people who were investigating him. And it didn't even come up in the debate. But the New York Times story to me is a Russia story, isn't it? It's a story about who's, you know, I mean, Deutsche Bank quite possibly is lending him money with guarantees from people. And we don't know who those are, but they could well be in, 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 in Russia. They seem likely to be in Russia. Eric Trump said they had as much money as they needed from Russia. Yeah, that was, that, yeah, I was gonna raise that point. It's hard to tell from his finance, from the financial disclosure forms, um, from what we, you know, we read of the New York Times uh, account, uh, to what degree there's you know, any dark Russian money in his enterprise. People speculate, you know, I've been chasing that story as of other reporters, and it remains a question mark at this time. But we do know, we do know that Eric Trump, when asked how Trump was financing his golf courses in Scotland, uh, which he's poured a lot of money into, and the finances there don't add up. They just don't add up. There's some, we've written about this, again, my, uh, my colleague Russ Choma and others have written on this, doesn't add up. But when asked about it, I think it was 2013 or 2014, maybe 2015, but before Trump ran for president, he said, we don't have to worry about the banks. We have money coming from Russia. And it's tens of millions of dollars that have poured, maybe hundreds of millions of dollars at this point into those golf courses. So we know that. We know that Trump, you know, was it 2008, 2009, got paid almost $100 million for, for, from a Palm Beach mansion. It was kind of a teardown that he'd bought a year or two earlier for half as much. And Michael Cohn tells us, Michael Cohn can be believed, that Trump always considered that, it was from a Russian fertilizer mogul, but he always considered that a gift from Putin, that, that guy that, that gift from Putin. What we do know from the tax returns is that one of his few you know, positive business enterprises of the last few years was when he held this universe in Moscow in 2013, which Michael Isikoff and I read a lot about in our book, Russian Roulette. And the finances there are weird too. He partnered up with a Russian billionaire, Eris Agrilarov, who's very close as they all have to be with Putin. And Eris paid, basically gave, put $12 million into that project. Uh, he ended up losing 10 million, and Trump personally walked away with 2.3 million, according to this New York Times story, his tax returns. So one way to look at this is, oh, Trump is a great businessman. He made 2.3 million while, while, while the Russian billionaire lost 10 million on the same deal. Another way to look at it is that a Russian billionaire close to Vladimir Putin spent $10 million in order to put $2.3 million into Trump's pocket. And then, you know, one thing that I'm also kind of obsessed with and why this, you know, we could, we could play this game all night long, why this never became a bigger scandal is that while Trump was running for president, he didn't tell us this at the time, but we now know it without a doubt, it's not, it's not an, an, an issue, is that he was negotiating a deal for a tower in Moscow that would have his name on it. He wouldn't build it, but it would have his name and he could make hundreds of millions of dollars off this deal. And then in pursuit of this deal, Michael Cohn on his behalf contacted Putin's office for help. So here's Trump running for president and saying Putin's a great guy. Um, and at the same time, trying to make a hundred million dollars in Moscow, knowing you can't make that money there if Putin doesn't like you. 
So he's going to get out there and criticize Putin or take a tough line on Putin while he's trying to score big? Of course not. This is one of the biggest conflicts of interest that any presidential candidate has ever had during a campaign. And yet, you know, it's a, you know, it's a couple of pages in the Mueller report. It's in the Senate Intelligence Committee report that just came out. It's undeniable. And they go on and on about the bullshit story of Hunter Biden getting a check from uh, the wife of a Russian politician, which is not even confirmed. No, it, it is crazy. I'd, I'd like to end up with a question for all, all three of you that I'll frame in a second. But Daniel, if I could ask you just a sidebar question here, picking up on what David was saying. You know, it, it could also be that a lot of these Russians were buying access to Trump because they had a lot of cash that they stole in Russia and they wanted to find a way to launder it into the U.S. market or to protect it in the U.S. market. Isn't it a fairly common tactic for people, you know, who are seeking money laundering to find a way to do it through uh, real estate and things like that? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, because real estate is a good solid investment most of the time. So yes, uh, there's. Uh, if you have to ask why were the Russians interested in him before uh, before he entered politics, money laundering is probably a large part of it. Uh, and there, there's a lot of criminal statutes involved, and there could be tax work depending upon whether he's getting money and not reporting it. Of course, you wouldn't see that on the returns if he didn't report it. Yeah, and, and and you know, there. By the way, there. You know, he there are buildings of his and others throughout New York that have ten million dollar apartments in them that no one has ever lived in, because people are using that as a way of, of of, of money. Yeah, sneaking money to something. It's it's better than uh, gold gold in your yeah, mattress, no, obviously. Ab absolutely, absolutely true. I, re I remember once I briefly rented an apartment in Miami, and there were like six floors of, of parking in the building. And, and on every floor, there were 30 Ferraris. And I was like, what is going on? You know, who owns? But, but what they do is they buy a Ferrari for three, four or $500,000, put a cover on it and just leave it there. You know, and that too becomes a form of money laundering. So anyway, um, I, there's a question, you know, that was on my mind that I'd like to pose to each of you. You all have different perspectives on this. We've seen one debate, we can characterize it as we will. But there will be um, another debate. There's the um, next week we have the vice presidential debate, and then there's a town hall with um, with uh, Trump and with Biden again, and then there's a debate after that, presumably. Um, I was frustrated by the questions that didn't get asked. Based on this, or maybe something else, what questions do you think need to be asked at the next debate, starting with Kavita? Oh, well, I'll pick up on the conflict of interest. Are you willing to hear and now, you know, I'm going through David's reporting and talking about all the family members for which there is a conflict of interest, citing that and saying, do you believe here and now will you make a commitment, President Trump, that you will disclose, family members will be required to submit kind of the disclosure documents, which they've been avoiding. And would you also commit to, kind of not having these people kind of wear these special advisor titles where they can use that as a loophole to get out of things and then use their own kind of loophole advantage to make deals that benefit them materially. So I think you're absolutely right. Chris Wallace didn't even bother to ask the right questions, but I think it would be putting Trump 
turning his tactics around on him and cornering him, knowing he'll never answer, but at least using that as a way to air, put some air and sunshine to the problem. Daniel? Well, sort of like going to the Bellowick of what I, I wrote about, it, one thing would be about the the $420 million, who do you owe it to and how do we, when is it due and how do we know you're not, it's not gonna distort your behavior. The other thing is, uh, if you're such a brilliant businessman, how on earth did you lose so much money? Is there anyone else walking the earth today could be handed $400 million from branding and The Apprentice and be uh, and lose it all. Uh, how could you possibly lose all that money? How could you have been so stupid? That's sort of the question. <laughs> how could you? But, but Trump would respond, don't ever use the term smart around me, um, as, he as he did during the debate. David, I have to say, I, I wish you were asking the questions at the debate, and I'm sure you have hundreds of them, um, but, but you know, what would, what would you like to, to get to the bottom of, or at least confront him with? I mean, that these things don't even come at, up, you know, at the White House press conferences. He's been in front of reporters for four days now since the Times article, and nobody has said to him, who do you owe the money to? Um, I have a hard time resisting asking all these various questions about Russia, some of the you know, issues that we talked about already. Um, in some ways, I'd like, you know, I would just sort of ask him, you think you really believe that two and five by then maybe two and ten thousand dead Americans is a, is a success? You really believe that's the best you've done the best possible? You really think that? And and like how come you you know you, you, you and then how come you didn't mention any of the deceased in the last debate? I mean I would look at those two things, but at the same time it doesn't matter what you ask him. It doesn't matter. And I you know I you know. I'm not a very optimistic person, but I felt good on Wednesday morning. I thought the, the whether it's a clusterfuck or a shit show, and that can be another podcast, um, that this was good because I think you know one challenge the media has had is conveying his his craziness. You know that you know if you you know they can't show him for an hour and a half at his press briefings going on and on. They just say. You know, spoke in angry tones about you know accusations, da 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 da, and then maybe you hear a soundbite, and but you don't see him for ninety minutes acting crazy, and you know I'm not always I haven't always been a fan of Frank Luntz the pollster, but he had his focus group on after the debate, and one woman I think you know, they were on to side voted said that it looked like the president was a crackhead for ninety minutes. And Frank, I heard him on, on, on TV today say that, you know, people noted that after the first five, 10 minutes, they felt it was kind of interesting and entertaining, exciting, all the back and forth. And after the next, next five or 10 minutes, they all got depressed. And by the end of it, they couldn't believe that this is the president of the United States. So I'm, you know, I don't want to cancel debates. I don't want to change the rules at all. I want Trump to have his full you know, stage for 90 minutes. If there are 17 undecided voters in Wisconsin out there uh, who are obviously undecided because they haven't, they don't pay attention the way we do. They don't watch all the briefings. They don't watch all the rallies. I believe watching this guy for 90 minutes like this, you know, if you're not with him now, it's not gonna bring you closer to him. So uh, questions at this point are completely irrelevant people are only responding to the impression he creates. Even Biden is almost second, you know, second stage here, uh, second banana. 
people pay somewhat attention to him. So ask anything you want, it doesn't matter. He will act like the, um, you know, the narcissist and the erratic person he is. And America gets to decide whether you want someone like that in charge of your nuclear arms. So I'm, I'm gonna add on 30 seconds here because we do have a doctor and it didn't really come up and it wasn't really addressed during the debate. What's the question that you would ask Trump, Kavita, about COVID? Oh, without a doubt, just, it, <laughs> I, see, I have an answer for his deaths question because he'll say, oh, I saved millions of lives. He has not answered the question about why he did not invoke the DPA and actually get supplies and testing, aside from his ventilator comments and some of the things he's been going on and on and on about how much they did in the military. There is no question that there was a shortage of PPE. There's still a shortage of PPE, hospitals and doctors. The Cleveland Clinic hosted that first debate. They had protesters outside the hospital, doctors and nurses that kind of had signs, where's my PPE? So no question, just, you know, what happened? And then again, getting to my theme of conflicts, why was it that Jared Kushner held a secret operation of people to try to stand up a testing strategy that benefited private equity and venture capital-backed companies, but didn't actually get masks to the people? And where are those 600 million masks that the U.S. Postal Service was going to send out, but you scrapped at the end? And so that's just where, where are the masks? Where's the PPE? What did you do? What did you do with all of this? Why can't we see it? Well, that's a good question. Um, you know, one of the struggles that I have uh, after each of the podcasts we do each week is I have to sit down and then figure out well, what do we call the podcast? But this one's called, you know, shit show or clusterfuck for sure. For sure. <laughs> For sure, that's where we're going to go with this. Uh, I want to thank you guys for your candid and insightful uh, comments, um, even despite the uh, disturbing nature of the material, and for uh, taking the time to join us. Uh, we've got a lot more coming up, uh, 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 folks in, in, in Deep State Radio Land. So go to the dsrnetwork.com. Every week, we've got one or two specials in addition to our two regular broadcasts each week, of course. Kavita will be back. And I hope at some point in the not too distant future, David and Daniel, you'll come back uh, for, for another discussion where you can at least expand your vocabularies uh, from what you might otherwise offer up on MSNBC. In the meantime, thanks to everybody and uh, stay healthy. <laughs>